Let's turn in our Bibles to the seventh chapter of Jeremiah. Seventh chapter, we have uh, what is called Jeremiah's Great Temple Sermon, as it's delivered at the gates of the temple there in Jerusalem. There's a question of uh, when this sermon was delivered. If you read different commentators, some uh, wish to identify it with the sermon that's mentioned in the 26th chapter of Isaiah, which was also delivered at the temple, and uh, which is similar in its content. And uh, yet, uh, while there are some similarities, there are some differences. Uh, that sermon was delivered at the beginning of the reign of King Jehoiakim, uh, who was uh, uh, opposed in many ways to the Lord. And the, uh, when Jeremiah delivered the sermon mentioned in the 26th chapter, he is immediately set upon with great opposition and persecuted. And uh, there's no such persecution mentioned here, as uh, Dr. Theodore Leish points out in his commentary on Jeremiah. So it would seem that really this uh, sermon, though similar, is different from the sermon that's mentioned in the 26th chapter. And this sermon was delivered during the reign of the King Josiah. And the reason there's no opposition is that during Josiah's reign, really, Josiah was pushing forward a real restoration of true religion, a restoration of the true worship of God at the temple, uh, the uh, dealing with the idolatry and other things that were so prevalent in the nation. And uh, the fact that there is no opposition mentioned here to this strong sermon would point us more to King Josiah's reign. We were told in the opening chapters of Jeremiah that Jeremiah began his ministry in the reign of Josiah and then uh, preached under several successive kings right on down to the ultimate destruction of the southern kingdom. Uh, the revival that was going on under King Josiah is pictured for us in Second Chronicles. And let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 34 and 35 for a minute just to get the feel of that. In Second Chronicles chapter 34, it opens up like this. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one in thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, this would have been sixteen years old, uh, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He begins a purging of the idolatry in the nation. When he's 16 years uh, old, well, he seeks when he's 16, and then when he's uh, 20, he begins this purging. 
as we jump on down in that chapter, verse uh, 7, when he had broken down the altars in the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. He didn't just uh, do it there in the capital, but he went throughout all of Israel. A little further on, in the 18th year of his reign, uh, he begins to restore the temple proper, which had fallen into disuse. And uh, in verse 14 of the 34th chapter, it says, When they brought out the money that was brought into the house, the money was brought into the house for the restoration of the house by the workmen, Hilkiah the priest, found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. In the rubbish and rubble he finds that portion of the Old Testament which was available up to this point, which had been lost under the previous uh, wicked kings. It had fallen into disuse and actually been lost. And uh, he brings it to the king. The king sends the book to Huldah the prophetess after he reads it and he sees all the commandments of the Lord and how badly they violated them. Um, He sends the book in verse 21, Go inquire of the Lord for me uh, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. And so they go to Huldah the prophetess And she says, yes, that's right, that this is God's word and that uh, wrath is to fall on the nation and that uh, this wrath cannot be averted, although uh, because of Josiah's tender heart, the wrath won't fall in his time. Verse 27, because thine heart was tender and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord, and I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place. The king, uh, in spite of those words, he doesn't stop with his efforts to bring about a real reformation in the land. And he calls all the people together, and he has them swear, stand and swear and covenant together that they will serve the Lord and obey the Lord. Verse 31, the king stood in a place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of the country, countries that pertained to the children of Israel, and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Moreover, Josiah kept a Passover, the first that had been kept in years. And uh, 
It says uh, in verse 18 of chapter 35, There was no Passover like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet. Neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept, and the priests, and the Levites, and all Judah and Israel that were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of the reign of Josiah was this Passover kept. Now, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 7. Apparently, it's right at this point, when there's such a tremendous revival of religion going on, when the services are being restored, when the old faith, uh, the old rugged cross is being sung, and the old rugged cross is being preached, and all the people are going, and they're keeping the Passover, and uh, just the evangelical faith is back in its bloom, the seminaries are filled with young men preparing for the ministry. And uh, along comes Jeremiah and preaches this a sermon. He says, hold it, hold everything, just a minute. And chapter 7, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. The first thing that he calls for is repentance, the requirement of repentance. He says this is all external. And all this business of going to the temple and singing the songs and keeping the Passover, apart from real heart repentance, not just dealing with the idol worship externally, but dealing with the idol worship in the home and in the heart and in the day they practice and in your business, there must be repentance, real heart repentance, the call to amend their ways. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, amend your doings and your ways. Uh, this social injustice, he gets real specific. Repentance requires us specifically dealing with our specific sins. Uh, you remember when, uh, the, when John the Baptist, who was the great preacher of repentance, appeared on the scene, and, and uh, he told it like it was, and men were pricked in their hearts, and they came to him, and they said, What must we do? And he had something specific. He told the soldiers, he said, Be content with your wages and lay hands on no man in violence. And uh, he said, uh, He that has two coats, let him give to him that has none. And he that has food to eat, let him give to him that has none. Very specific, dealing with specific things. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is told to do by God. And he spells it out. In uh, uh, verse 5, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after the other gods to your hurt. Now here's this revival of religion going on, true religion in a sense, the true temple, the true Passover, and yet there wasn't a dealing with specific sins like those. A man wasn't doing justice with his neighbor. He was oppressing the stranger, taking advantage of the stranger. The fatherless and the widow. 
If he could make some money out of him, he would. He'd take advantage of it. And so he specifically mentions these things. This is kind of like James in the New Testament. James comes along and uh, you remember James said, Faith without works is dead. The devils can sing the old rugged cross. The devils believe. He said, I'm not impressed with your faith unless it affects your conduct. And then he gets real specific. He says, any man who professes uh, to be religious but bridleth not his tongue deceives himself, and the truth is not in it. He says, what about that discrimination? When you say to one man of one social class, you sit over here and to another stand there over there. And uh, what about your money? And he gets real specific. That's exactly the same thing you have here. Repentance means that I deal with my particular sins and the sins of my group that I, that I really deal with. How has it happened? How has it happened that the fundamentalists in our nation in past years, till just recently, even if now, the fundamentalists have been the blindest, to, the blindest to some of the social sins of our day. How is it uh, that the men who uh, stand the strongest on the inspiration of Scripture often are the worst in their treatment of their fellow men? I never will forget. Uh, you know, when I was in seminary, I went to a liberal seminary, and I hated, uh, once I became a Christian after I'd been there a year, I hated the mixture, and I wanted just truth, and I had the feeling if I ever got in a church where there was just the truth being preached, that surely the lifestyle would be amazingly different. And I had the opportunity to go to a church like that one summer up in Wisconsin and to work sort of on the staff of the church while I worked at a big camp that the church had. And uh, that church was as solid and as sound and as evangelical as any church in the world. And I lived with a family in that church who, man, I mean, they got up and went to bed by the old rugged cross. And they were as unloving and as harsh as anybody I'd ever encountered. And, and I learned something. There's such a thing as a dead, sterile orthodoxy. There's such a thing as, uh, as having all of the right doctrine and yet uh, really not having dealt with sin, the sins in your life, in your church, in your day, in your group, in your school, at all. That was a shock to me. Of course, it shouldn't have shocked me because there's a lot of it in myself, but it's always easier to see it in the other fellow. And then the Lord showed me some in myself. But... Uh, when we really begin to deal with our sins, then people will sit up and take notice. What are the sins of our day? If Jeremiah were preaching that sermon today, what would he say to us? He might say something about our tongue, might he? he might say something about uh, profanity. Uh, I remember reading about Branch Rickey, uh, the manager <coughs> uh, of the uh, one of the teams who was signing a contract at uh, Ebbets Field for the use of Ebbets Field for, uh, for uh, pro football. And as he's negotiating there for the use of the field in high figures, all of a sudden he stops. He says, uh, deal's off. They said, why? I said, I don't like the way you're talking about a friend of mine. I said, what are you talking about? 
He said, I'm a Christian. You've been taking the name of Jesus Christ in vain and, and since we started, and the deal's off. And boy, they apologized in a hurry, and then he said, all right, we'll go ahead. But uh, he wasn't going to have them talking like that. Uh, I think of uh, the Sabbath day and how we observe the Sabbath. Do you know that the second uh, busiest day business-wise is the Sabbath in America now? And if Christians uh, didn't go to these open stores, well, I don't think they'd be doing such good business. If 40% of the nation uh, supposedly is evangelical, uh, I doubt the figure, but that's what the Gallup poll showed, wasn't it? Something like that, that 40% of the nation claimed to have been born again. Uh, well, now, uh, some of those are supporting those stores, or those stores wouldn't stay open. Uh, Eric Little, the British record holder for the 100-yard dash, when he was preparing to run for the Olympics in 1924, found, uh, as he was preparing to run the 100-meter race, that the heats for that race were to be held on the Sunday, on Sunday. And so he just said, I'm not running. And instead, he decided to prepare for a race that he wasn't used to running, the 400-meter race. He began to train to run it. As he lined up to run it, because it wasn't being done on Sunday, a friend came over and pressed a piece of paper in his hand. He looked at it. There's a quote from Samuel, Them that honor me, I will honor, saith the Lord. He won that 400 meter and set a record. Uh, specific dealing with the sins of our day, our age, our situation. That's the first thing, the requirement of repentance. Second, the denouncing of dependence on the temple. Verse 4, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Apparently, as the people would come to the Passover and so on, they would say, Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. These buildings are the Lord's house. And they were trusting in the fact that this was the Lord's house. Surely the Lord was with them. Surely they were in his favor because they had the Lord's house. And uh, they had the true faith. And he said, No. He denounces dependence on that formula and that idea. Now, there is a relation between true religion and the safety of a nation, but restoration of true religion involves more than just externals. It involves those uh, sins that we need to deal with in our hearts and in our homes. And so this was a false thing. In verse 12, notice he says, uh, But go ye now unto my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, this is the southern kingdom that's being addressed by Jeremiah. The northern kingdom was destroyed a hundred years before, and they had had the Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh, now it was in the temple. But God says, go to Shiloh and see what I did there. Uh, don't trust in a sacred place or think that I'm obligated to bless because you have the true faith. Unless you're really walking with me, that was an abuse of true religion. The denouncing of dependence on the external worship. The 
Uh, third thing is the promise of peace to the nation. In verse 7, uh, God says, Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in this land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But notice verse 6, If ye oppress not the stranger. Verse 7, Then will I cause you to dwell in this place. The promise of peace, if they really would do this. Josiah had inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, No, there's no averting of my wrath. But because your heart was tender, why, I, I won't send it in your day. But Josiah didn't give up. He said, Let's don't take that note. Let's go ahead and, and start and really reform and see if God won't, won't really be with us and allow us to dwell in this place and not send us into captivity and so on. And God says, yes, if you really will reform your ways, if you oppress not the neighbor and the stranger and so on, then will I cause you to dwell in this place. Wasn't that tremendous? If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The promise of peace, if we really do reform our ways. The fourth thing is the corruption of what we could call Christian liberty. In uh, verse 9, Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye knew not? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. The abuse of Christian liberty. God says, You come and stand in my house and you say, Christ died for our sins. My sins are forgiven. So I don't really need to worry about it. After all, Christian liberty... Uh, why not sin that grace may abound? Amazing grace. Grace that's greater than all of our sin, I might as well sin. Since, after all, my sins are paid for. You ever think like that? You ever talk to anyone who says, Yes, I know it's not God's will that uh, I divorce my husband. But after all, God does forgive, doesn't he? Didn't Christ die? So I'm going to do it. You ever talk to anybody like that? Corruption of Christian liberty. That's twisting the grace of God and making it license to sin. Yes, God does forgive. Yes, Christ did die for that sin. But gosh, that's an awful, awful attitude. An awful dangerous attitude. But that's kind of what they were doing. Uh, the next thing is the perversion of the purpose of the temple. The perversion of the purpose of the temple. In verse 11, it says, Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Uh, the temple was being corrupted by probably the priesthood. You remember that Jesus quoted this verse. Uh, some uh, 600 years later, when he referred to, to the fact that uh, they had taken 
God's house, which was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations and had made it into a den of thieves, he refers back to this verse. They had perverted the purpose of the temple. In uh, a recent book, Discipling the Nations, by Richard de Ritter, who's a professor at Calvin Seminary, he talks about the purpose of the temple. And uh, he says, <clears throat> The church may not forget that God saves people and converts the nations by working in the midst of his own people. It is his interventions that make Israel and today makes the church the light of the world. The reason why Jesus came to Israel was precisely because his mission concerned the whole world. You remember, Jesus kept saying, I am sent not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, when he would send his disciples out, he'd say, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm sent not for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We say, well, isn't he a savior for the world? Yes. Well, why all the emphasis on Israel? Because Israel was in such bad shape. Here's Israel and their lost sheep. And he sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to get Israel in shape to be a light to the nations. That was the purpose of Israel. And that was the purpose of the temple, to be a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, Derrida goes on to speak of the cleansing of the temple. And uh, when Jesus made the whip there and drives out the money changers who are making money falsely there in the temple and so on, it says uh, that this is really referring back to Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, which says this, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Here are Gentiles who do this. This is Isaiah speaking. 750 B.C. The foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered, speaking of the Gentiles. And uh, it certainly parallels this verse here in Jeremiah 7. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, the part of the temple that he cleansed, the part of the temple he drove these money changers out of was the court of the Gentiles, the only court that the Gentiles were allowed to come in. This was the only part of the temple, says Derrida, to which non-Jews had access. In other words, the only place in God's house of prayer that Gentiles were permitted to use to worship God. Yet their place had been preempted by the agents of Annas the high priest, for whom these concessions constituted a rich source of revenue. He says Mark makes a significant observation regarding this cleansing action of Jesus. 
He observes that Jesus' actions were combined with instruction, that after Jesus had driven out those who sold and those who bought, he taught and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And the multitude was astonished at his teaching. The purpose of the temple, like the purpose of Israel, was to be a light to the nations. We have in an Old Testament instance a picture of what Israel was really meant to be. You remember when the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon? This is described in 1 Kings chapter 10. Look at that for a minute. 1 Kings chapter 10. Because you find in this story a picture of what God intended, what his, what his purpose for Israel was. Solomon in himself embodies the nation of Israel. And uh, it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. What kind of questions? Questions about God, questions about life after death, questions about how she could be saved, questions about like that, hard questions. And uh, when she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones, when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. He takes her out of her darkness where she's groping for light, and he leads her to the light, true knowledge of God. There's no question that he didn't answer. And notice her response in verse 8. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, and so on. And we have a picture. Here's, here's this king, by his wisdom, by his obvious blessing, attracting from afar a Gentile who comes and says, I know that you have something. I want to know about God. I want to have his blessing like you have his blessing. Now, what happened there? between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba was what God designed to have happen to the Gentiles, the nations of the world, through Israel. But Israel was never in shape to be a light to the nations. Israel was always so corrupted and so led astray in their idolatries. So Christ makes one final effort. He comes to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first uh, to uh, seek one last time to call the nation to repentance. Of course, ultimately his plan was that he would die for our sins and the sins of the world and save. But still, we have here what God designed for his temple and for his people. Because uh, they were not truly repenting, Jeremiah says that God would punish the nation. As he did uh, destroy Shiloh, he would do similarly there. In verse 15 of Jeremiah 7, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim, the northern kingdom there. 
Then you have an amazing thing as the sixth point. The prohibition of prayer by the prophet. God forbids Jeremiah to pray. In verse 16, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Isn't that something? God says, Jeremiah, I do not want you to pray for them anymore. The decree, says Matthew Henry, had gone forth. Their learn is resolved on, therefore pray not. That is, do not pray for the preventing of God's judgment because it's too late. It's kind of like uh, God's word to Samuel when he said to Samuel, When will you cease mourning for Saul? Calvin says, Jeremiah no doubt continued in his prayers. He might have prayed for two things. He might have prayed that God would uh, reverse his decree about judgment, but that he was forbidden to pray about. But he might pray that God would be mindful of his covenant in preserving a remnant, and this was done. In other words, Jeremiah was not forbidden to pray for the remnant of the true seed, the true elect of God to be preserved and a true people brought out of this because God had promised that that would be. Uh, he's forbidden, though, to pray for the people as a whole and the averting of the judgment. And the reason given? For I will not hear. Why won't he hear? Well, he tells us why he won't hear. He says, I will not hear thee because they won't obey. Uh, they will not turn. They are wedded to their sins. Finally, we have the priority of obedience over performance of sacrifice. Verse 22. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Now, we have a problem here because he said, I did not command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But if you go back and read Exodus, where they come out of Egypt, he did command them to offer such sacrifices. And it seems that Jeremiah is contradicting this, or that God is contradicting himself. And this is a famous passage of Scripture because liberal theologians have seized upon this to build a whole theory of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and how they came into being. And their view is that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, but rather you had a series of writers, each writing a different document, and uh, that one of these writers, uh, you could call him the Deuteronomist, he was always concerned about law. Another, uh, he was always concerned about sacrifices and offerings. And these writers were writing at the time of Jeremiah, not seven or eight hundred years previous, Moses' writing, but them writing and putting into the mouth of Moses these 
sacrifices and these laws and so on. And that actually this discovery of the book, really they just wrote a book and signed Moses' name to it in effect. That's the liberal view of the documentary hypothesis of the origin of the Old Testament, commonly known as the JEDP theory, the Jehovah's, the Elihist, the Deuteronomist, and the priestly documents. And for that's the theory I was taught in seminary, incidentally, by my Old Testament professor. Fortunately, I had a few other professors. <clears throat> if you want a thorough refutation of that uh, view, read... Uh, more Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Now, there are many good refutations of it. But what do we do with this problem here? Well, uh, actually, what is being said is that obedience has priority over the performance of sacrifice. John Calvin again, puts it straight when he puts it like this. Calvin says, The Jews were attentive to sacrifices and yet neglected the main things, faith and repentance. Hence the prophet here repudiates sacrifices because these false worshipers of God had adulterated them. For they were only intent on external rites and overlooked their design or even despised it. And he points out that there are many other passages where God says in the Old Testament, uh, your new moons and your Sabbaths away with. I cannot stand them. When you offer a sacrifice, it says if you killed a man uh, because of the way they were perverting these sacrifices. And yet, says uh, Calvin, Jeremiah seems to have exceeded due limits as he says of God that he gave no command respecting sacrifices. And... Uh, he says, Why then is it said here that he spoke nothing respecting sacrifices, even because God regards not sacrifices in themselves? He makes a distinction between external signs and spiritual worship. And God had commanded nothing respecting mere sacrifices, sacrifices for their own sake. And... Uh, that we may more fully comprehend this doctrine, we must remember this principle, that the basis of true religion is obedience. Obedience. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. We put our trust in Jesus Christ to save us, but that trust is not real faith, saving faith, unless it's combined with true repentance, true surrender, true obedience. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. In our efforts at national revival, and we've been engaged in such efforts with His Life and other things, how much has our effort been like their effort, where it was more external and not dealing with our own heart and home sins? You know, there's another temple today that needs cleansing, the temple of our own body, uh, the church. Dealing with sin in our own midst. We are the temple. Christ dwells in us, and our bodies are temples. As have we dealt with those sins and false things in our own temples? In our list of priorities, where does obedience come? Do we understand that obedience must be right up at the top there in our walk with God, that 
Uh, there's no such thing as a walk with the Lord that isn't characterized by obedience. We've somehow twisted this, and we don't keep it before us, that God doesn't accept our praise when it's not accompanied with a broken heart and a, and a path that's broken from our own particular sins, the sins of our tongue, the sins of anger and unforgivingness and bitterness. Wife, if your husband does something that you don't like, do you feel free to be angry with him and not forgive him for two or three days? Now, that's a very common sin in our midst, I know. Husband, what about you? Child, do you feel free to uh, be mad at your parents or rebel against your parents? I see, this is, this is the thing that God gives priority to right here. And it's when we begin to deal with those kind of things that that song, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and forgive and heal their land. That's when God's promise begins to take on a reality and real hope. Let us pray. Father, I pray for myself that you would convict me of my own personal sins, and they're many, of my sins, uh, Father, that defile your temple, and that I would be sensitive. I'd be like uh, that young king was, Father, with a tender heart, and that I'd rend my heart and not just my garments. Oh, Father, cause the searchlight of your Spirit to shine in every heart here tonight that our revival might be true.